0: Ladies and gentlemen, we invite you to meet the press. Meet the press. Meet the press. Welcome to 1947, the Meet the Press podcast this week. uh, If you talk to a lot of national security experts, both inside this administration and outside, many of them will say the nearest term threat is Korea. It's not ISIS. It's not anything else, but it is North Korea. So I figured in the way we did a nice deep dive a few months back on all things Putin, it's time to do a deep dive on all things North Korea, trying to understand this regime. Best person I could think of is Chris Hill, uh, former ambassador to South Korea for the United States. He's also, of course, was a former ambassador to Iraq, veteran Foreign Service guy, but knows uh, the Korea conundrum about as well as any American official. Mr. Hill, welcome to 1947. Thank you very much. So let's start with uh, a little bit of history here. And how did this country become a family-dominated dictatorship?
1: Well, I think like a lot of things uh, you can blame in the uh, mid-20th century, you can certainly look at how the Soviet Union handled things. Remember right after or just before the U.S. Uh, Uh, dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and ended the war. The Russians uh, uh, entered the war. That was something we wanted them to do for months, even years. But they didn't do it until, essentially, we had ended it. So they swept down in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, We were concerned that they would take all of of, uh, Korea. So we had some very smart people, including a a future Secretary of State, George uh, – I'm sorry, uh, Dean Rusk, uh, who Mm -hmm. actually – helped uh, negotiate a deal where the Russians would take the Japanese surrender north of the 38th parallel and we'd rush in some (laughs) troops to take the Japanese surrender south of the 38th parallel and before you knew it you had kind of you had two Koreas In the meantime, the Russians had a uh, Korean communist leader named Kim Il-sung, who had been indoctrinated by them and worked with them. I'm not sure he killed all that many Japanese, as he claimed, but he was essentially installed. And uh, ever since, we've had this uh, Kim dynasty, and we're now on uh, Kim 3.0. You
0: know, by the way, you bring up... Whenever military leaders or commanders try to draw maps, it doesn't go well. I think about the British and the French in the Middle East uh, after the Ottoman
1: Empire. We still haven't recovered from that. I think that's the, Don't draw maps. You got it. And, uh, you know, when you look at things like uh, 38th parallel. Why the 38th parallel? Uh, it could have been somewhere else. So you're absolutely right. Right. Don't draw maps and don't draw them on the back of envelopes, which often happened in the Balkans.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Well, so all right, here we are, and I guess let's go a little bit of the history of the of their um, of their ambition to become a nuclear power. Um, why have we let this? I, I say this this way: Why have we let it fester so long? We've actually had this conversation on air, too, and I, so give me the non-TV soundbite answer on this one. It just seems as if. We, we took out – we made sure Saddam couldn't do this in the early 80s. Obviously, the, the Israelis technically did it. We, we've gone out of our way to prevent this in so many other countries. We've, we've
1: handled Korea with arguably kid gloves on it. Why? Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't draw lines on maps, but you should look at maps. And uh, what you see on the map of the Korean Peninsula is you've got a huge uh, South Korean urban population – some 20 million people, mainly in Seoul, but spread out from Seoul, and those some 20 million people are within artillery range of the North Koreans, who have something like 14,000 artillery tubes. So any notion that you could kind of solve this Iraq style by invading North Korea, you have to consider the fact that uh, 20 million South Korean um, civilians would be uh, would be because I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Iraq war. I'm thinking what was done
0: where in in the early eighties, where we just took out a potential nuclear facility of Saddam's. Like I guess that's where I'm wondering why did we ever allow this to get off the ground when we didn't with other countries we'd get more aggressive?
1: Well, again, we would get more aggressive, but uh, you can't do it without the South Koreans being part of it. And secondly, you've got a uh, kind of a dangerous situation with so many uh civilians right there next to the Mm -hmm. so-called demilitarized zone i say so-called because it's not particularly demilitarized and so if you're going to do that you better evacuate 20 million people and it's a big undertaking so like a lot of things uh it would kind of uh sort of the feeling was well maybe it's not so serious maybe we can you know kind of kick this can down the road uh they've been at this since the 1960s the russians thought well gee we'll give them a little uh experimental uh Experimental (laughs) reactor. This will satisfy their needs. And in fact, they've been going after nuclear weapons, as you say, as you suggest, since the 1960s. It didn't start with uh, President Bush kind of hurting their feelings by calling them part of the axis of evil. The problem is, none of the solutions is particularly compelling. We have sanctioned the heck out of them. They're probably the most sanctioned country in the world. We've tried to work with the Chinese, but the Chinese have kind of mixed views of North Korea and that's a complicated issue. Uh we've tried to work with the Russians, but that's a country whose foreign policy is not just generated by national interests, it's also generated just by just plain old spite. They like right. to do things that we don't want right. them if to we do. we want
0: it, they don't. Right? They I mean, don't. That's,
1: uh, yeah. So it's just that there's no obvious solution that has come to light that we said, well, we got to do that. I mean, there's just, there's no obvious thing. Right, and me, moreover, go there's go ahead, a lot of feeling time. that maybe the North Koreans don't really have as much as they say they have.
0: Well, let me ask you that. Do you Do you think they're bluffing?
1: Uh, I think bluffing and and being opaque is part of their national security strategy. But we now know, thanks to having people on the ground uh, uh, during the uh, second Bush term, during the uh, second Clinton term, where we had people who could see the kind of level of technology they were at, it was pretty clear that they uh, they had a... Uh, it 's pretty ramshackle looking um, uh, reactor, but they are they are producing spent fuel, which in turn was being reprocessed uh, so they have the capacity to produce nuclear uh, material we know they 've uh, tested nuclear material in fact, in two thousand and sixteen, they had two nuclear tests which were much bigger than the than the first one they had in two thousand and six, so they 're clearly moving along on that. We know they have missiles that uh, you know they uh, they probably don't win any gold medals for accuracy, but uh, they have missiles that really are medium range, and they are working on multi-stage missiles that could be long range. So, we see an intent, and we see a capability to put it all together. And at some point, probably in the next uh, few short years, they'll have a deliverable nuclear weapon. Well,
0: James Woolsey did an—I don't know if you heard, saw this today, um, actually, and today for podcast viewers. could be any day of the week, but it's on March 29th that we're doing this interview with you, uh, Chris. And uh, former CIA director, uh, co-authored with Vincent Pryor, wrote an op-ed that basically said—it's how it's headlined, How North Korea Could Kill 90% of Americans. But the basis of it is he thinks—their argument is that he thinks the media and the government in general have been— um, Downplaying North Korea's capabilities, that that we don't, that we are underplaying the threat in general. Do you think we are?
1: Uh, no, I don't think we're underplaying it. I think the Chinese have tended to underplay it when they didn't really know what to do. They would just sort of downplay things and say, "Oh, it's not a big problem." I think we've gotten a real sense that, uh, as I suggested, I mean, we actually know what they're capable of. And again, it's sort of like the old Soviet army; it's not pretty stuff. It's not the most, uh, you know, shiny, newest technology, but it works. And so uh, I, I think we've called a spade a spade now. Uh, but uh, I, I must say with Mr. Woolsey, uh, you know, good for him for pointing out that it's a threat. But I seem to remember he was in government as well, and I don't remember any <laughs> kind of big uh, change in the policy. Let's,
0: let's go to the Chinese piece uh, a minute. And why they, they seem to be in this, and obviously they, they seem to worry about immigration. That seems to be one thing you always hear they fear, that if that somehow – if they don't manage the Korea situation, then somehow all these North Koreans are going to end up, um, I guess, coming into China desperately looking for food and assistance, things like that. But they also prop them up financially, right? Yeah. And, and it's also – I guess they, they're a needed energy source. But it there is a point where the 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 coal I guess that North Korea is providing isn't going to be that helpful to China at what point does China say, "You know what we don't need you anymore and then and is that the point that they actually then become constructive in trying to essentially end this regime?
1: Well, you know there are one point four billion Chinese, and they don't all have the same opinion. Uh, and I think if you went down to a business center like Shanghai and you said to someone, well, what do you think of North Korea? They'd throw them under, uh, under a bus in a Shanghai minute. But if you go up to uh, Beijing, you see a lot of pod, uh, party cadre, and uh, you see people from the People's Liberation Army, uh, you get a kind of different view. So, yes, refugees is is one element of it. I, I don't say it has zero importance. It has more than zero importance. But I would suggest to you that it's more complex. If there's a North Korean demise, and there is a view in China that is that, you know, if they really put the heat on them, there could well be a demise where one day we wake up and Kim Jong-un is no longer with us, thanks mm-hmm. to some disgruntled army type. Who knows? And so then what? then what would probably be a successor korean state which is our friend our ally and so before you know it uh china would have a us ally right on their border and so soon it would look to the chinese that it's a it's a strategic defeat for them and a strategic victory for the U.S. After all, they worry about these anti-ballistic missile systems that we're putting in, the so-called THAAD, because it has a radar that would look way into China and be able to Mm -hmm. assess what's going on with their own uh, nuclear programs. What if we had listening posts on the Yalu River? We would have capabilities there, too. What if we had U.S. troops up on the Yalu River? So there would be a feeling, especially among very kind of uh, zero-sum security types, that somehow, Now, this is a big victory for the U.S. and a defeat for China. Uh, Go ahead. The premise of this, though, I mean, I get
0: that, right? And it's sort of – it's a very Putin way of thinking. But I I get that uh, mindset on one hand. On the other hand, it's not as if – South, okay, so China, you get North Korea, and we still have as an important U.S. ally one of the most important growing
1: economies in the world. In South Korea. It's It's happened already. Yeah, it's happening already. And, uh, you know, look, everybody has his Putin... And uh, you have to understand that being Putin is not always being rational, it's being spiteful at times. And so there's a lot of irrational thinking in China that somehow North Korea's demise would bring the US, uh, give the US a strategic advantage, and play a role in China's own kind of political churn. I mean, you have a lot of Chinese saying, we gotta get rid of this pretense of a Marxist-Leninist state, we've really gotta move ahead. Other Chinese say not so fast, and then their neighboring state, Marxist-Leninist to the nth, Takes a, you know goes down and then there are Chinese who kind of, that kind of affects the domestic debate within China. When you see that kind of change, you'd have Chinese saying, "Well, why are we the only remaining commie country in the world?" Nice. So it it has an overall cumulative effect such that there is no uh, consensus. And when there's no consensus, there's no movement. And it is extraordinary to see a Chinese leader use talking points that could have been written 30 years ago, and usually have the word patience in there that Somehow we need <laughs> right. to be patient, and of course, the Obama administration, in a, I think a well-meaning effort at wisdom, put the word "strategic" in front of patience. And before you know it, we had a policy of strategic patience, which to most people, and especially people in the Trump administration, looked like no policy at all. So, um, so there's a, this is a kind of a fraught situation. At the same time, the the um, U.S. needs to get serious. If we're going to talk to the Chinese and we're going to say, look, you've got to do something about North Korea. This is your own little Frankenstein monster that you've created and you've got to do something. We need to kind of say that with the idea that, no, we're not going to hit them on trade. No, we're not going to hit them on Tibet or every other subject we uh, are unhappy with, we're going to have to kind of set some priorities and say, China, this is what you need to do. And by the way, this is what we would be prepared to do if you were prepared to do what you have to do. We would, would not- Would you prioritize
0: North Korea right now over the South China Sea business?
1: I'm, I'm an old-fashioned guy, and I just think uh, nuclear weapons are a big problem. And uh, um, there's no question the South How old-fashioned China of you. Sea- Yeah, there's no question the South China Sea issue is problematic. I mean, it's a longstanding Chinese policy, but now they have got the capability to sort of enforce their policy. They're creating all kinds of problems with their neighbors. At the end of the day, they're going to realize that whether they like it or not, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, I mean, all these countries are going to be their neighbors for years to come, and they better figure out how how to end this dance. But I think the North Korean thing is really very dangerous, and I think it should be uh, way up there at number one. Why did it feel like about ten or twelve years ago,
0: Korean unification was a was like a real possibility?
1: You know, I think there was a feeling um, that certainly Kim Jong Kim Jong Il, uh, the dad.
0: The dad, the, dad, you know, the, dad, the
1: middle, the granddad, yeah, number two, yeah. was uh, somehow you know things were kind of drifting, not going well. He, he was not a very popular guy, and then when Kim Jong Il got Kim Jong got to be Kim Jong very ill in in 08, there was a feeling, well, you know, they're not going to be able to manage this succession. Uh, so they had Kim Jong-nam, who was living in Macau, they had a couple of other possibilities. But no one thought at the time uh, that Kim Jong-un, the current leader, would really be able to take over and kind of manage the place. And uh, he did take over uh, just a little over five years ago, and he's kind of in charge, uh, whether we like it or not. He's. Uh, gone after anyone who says boo to him including his his uncle Sung, tech you know he pre he, he uh, perp walked him out of a uh, out of a party meeting and had him shot the next day i mean this guy uh, is not shy and so i think now people talk less about um the idea of collapse because it, it just doesn't look like the place is collapsing the way maybe 10 or 15 years ago there was a feeling of drift and that Kim Jong-il wasn't really uh, managing things and certainly wouldn't manage the, success, the succession.
0: You know, I talked to a, a South Korean um, uh, business uh, type with some familiarity in government who thought, who speculated, and I'm, you know, I'm not taking this to bank. I'm, I, I want to ask you, the, the expert, who speculated that the assassination of of the brother uh, and a few other things that there's been a lot of chatter, particularly in Seoul, that you know he's lashing out because he's nervous. That you don't do these things unless you're nervous about your own standing. How secure do you think Kim Jong Un is right now?
1: Um. It would not. I would not uh, fall out of bed if I woke up to my uh, alarm clock and heard that he had uh, was no longer with us. Uh, I think something like that could happen. He obviously has a lot of people unhappy with him. Uh, on the one hand, being able to uh, essentially execute uh, hundreds of people shows some strength, but it also shows some weakness. Uh, it's a tactic, especially going after family members. I think some of what went on in the family members was quite literally a family feud Mm -hmm. where he felt he was kind of kept away from the grandfather, even kept away from his father and not treated with the proper respect. And certainly his mother, he felt his mother wasn't treated with proper respect. As you recall, she was not, how to put it, married in the church. Uh, So. Um, so, to some extent, what we're seeing, perhaps, is a little payback for that period. But I think also to take um, China's sort of main guy there, Chung song Tech, who was supposed to be uh, the kind of regent and was going to manage all this, and then to, um, to execute him, uh, I think was a real uh, diss toward the Chinese. And it basically showed this guy is willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, the Chinese have never invited Kim Jong-un to... Uh, to china in fact as they as hmm. the chinese tell us we need to negotiate with the north koreans one question to ask the chinese well if you think that's so easy why have you not invited uh, kim jong-un for uh uh for a hamburger and a beer as uh as uh, president president what, the, what do you know about him don't know much about him he um he certainly, during my three trips to uh, North Korea, his name did not come up. There was no uh, sense that he was someone who was going to handle uh deal with foreigners. Uh, we do know that he went to school in Switzerland, but, uh, you know, he was dropped off in the morning and picked up uh, up in the early afternoon. So it's not at all clear that he had a uh, sort of full exposure to Swiss society. Um, and uh you know, we, we do know that he likes things that a lot of young age- Asians like, uh, namely NBA basketball, hence right. the Dennis Rodman business. Yes. But, um, you know, he seems to want some sort of flashy accoutrements of uh, modernization, but it comes down to, you know, amusement parks and the like. Um, an interest in modernization, but not an interest in the reforms that would um, result in modernization. So uh, pretty much of a uh, figure who... Uh, um, you know, you take one look at him and you ask yourself does he look like the uh, a reformer and the answer is no. He just I guess the fear I
0: I just look, the fear I have and it certainly I think a fear that many share is that he just seems a bit immature and irrational. Now, is that just because we think he's young and we just assume somebody young is going to be that way or do we think that's his profile?
1: Uh, I think to some extent it is his profile when you, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, every year they choose to be extremely offended that we have military exercises with the South Koreans. And by the way, when you have a military alliance, as we do with South Korea, you need to have your troops exercise. That's part of what military alliances are about. But the North Koreans choose to be terribly upset about this. And you've got these sort of comical scenes of his, uh, you know, directing uh, his, um, you know, missile tests. And then having a map of the United States with certain places, such as uh, where I'm speaking from now, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, lit up as if they were going after Colorado. And uh, maybe someone else did that, but I'm pretty convinced he did it. And I think it speaks to a very. Uh, Um, sort of um, immature frame of mind. Uh, No one has ever come back from North Korea saying uh, we can do business with that guy. We need to open up channels. I have not heard that at all from anybody. And that's different from his father, who uh, you know, again... um, You would
0: always, when you were over there, there would be those, well, you know, maybe he can be talked to. Maybe he can be reasoned with, right?
1: Well, you know, the North Koreans were engaged in, um, in the nuclear talks I think one reason was they wanted to see what they could get out of them. I think another reason was the Chinese insisted that they be engaged. And now I think they're not interested in that. And they feel that to have nuclear weapons would not only be a shortcut to being a great power, but could also be a leveraging uh, point to get more assistance from everybody, including their neighbors, South Korea and Japan. And I don't buy the argument, by the way, that they are interested in nuclear weapons for so-called regime regime preservation. I think they're interested in those nuclear weapons to try to bully their neighbors.
0: All right. If you could wave your magic wand, how would you set U.S. foreign policy right now when it comes to North Korea?
1: I would really, I, I know this is a triumph of hope over experience, but I would really double down on China. Everything the Chinese uh, would say, to, if I were Tillerson and, and the Chinese said, look, we're worried about this or that, I would say, I'm going to have someone over here in two days, and we're going to talk about U.S., interests, what they are, what they're not, and see if we can get to an overall understanding of what we both need. I would really drill down heavily with the uh, Chinese to make sure there's no misunderstanding. Secondly, uh, I would really uh, enhance the South Korean um, alliance, and Japan for that matter. I would be continuing to deploy the best anti-missile systems we have, and and we're doing just that. And at the same time, I would be explaining it to the Chinese every day that this is what allies need to do for other allies. So I'd really go at those two points. I would tell the Chinese that I'm prepared to talk to the North Koreans. Uh, as the Chinese keep pushing us to do, but not prepared to talk on the basis of their having amnesia about what they've already agreed to. And I think that needs to be clear that we're not going to you know, start from zero. I mean, the North Koreans agreed to give up their nuclear programs, and that's the basis that we'll have talks with them. And I'd hold hard to that. And I wouldn't uh, be interested in various uh, uh, ideas the Chinese have that we need to get the North Koreans to freeze their tests I mean, who knows what freezing tests can actually do in return for us taking a gesture such as doing away with our military exercises. I would really draw the line against that kind of thing. But I would really be in the Chinese faces every day of the week. And if my emissary got tired, I'd get another emissary to do it. I wouldn't give the Chinese a day without hearing a serious American view about what peace and security in the Korean Peninsula would look like. And I would even go so far having uh, in you know consultation with the South Koreans, I would give them some assurances of where U.S. troops would be or U.S. listening posts. And hint, they would not be north of the 38th parallel. Well, it sounds like if,
0: and I'd say it sounds like that's what Tillerson sort of the message Tillerson tried to send in that first trip. I mean, he may not have been as effective as, you know, he he's got a lot of he's got a lot of learning to do on how to how to use the power of his job and his own pulpit um, that he has, but it sounds like that is the policy this Trump administration's trying to formulate that well, this is on China.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I'm glad they got off of the uh, one-China policy issue where they tried to, you know, put that into play because uh, that's a dog that's not going to hunt. But what I would like to see is a much more, not so much measured, but much more uh, relentless. Effort to deal with the problem. And so having Tillerson go there. And by the way, I think he said mainly the the right things. I mean,
0: uh, by the way, the same policy. He really he didn't say anything that Clinton,
1: Rice, Powell. Right. I mean, it really wasn't a change, was it? I mean. I mean, every American says, you know, all solutions are on the table. I mean, I'll bet if you asked Bill Belichick at halftime, he'd say the same (laughs) thing about football. I mean, so I didn't really think there was uh, some deeper meaning there, but I saw a kind of willingness to try to figure out uh, and work with the Chinese. But I think uh, they do need a set. The uh, Trump administration does need a sense that they are serious about being relentless. And so for him to go and then have no one go in the next two weeks is not my definition of relentless.
0: Fair enough. Chris Hill, you haven't made me feel any better about the North Korea threat, but I feel more informed about the North Korea threat. Uh, well,
1: I just just remember – I mean I came from – I remember I was in – I yeah. worry
0: – by the way, part of me worries that, that, that there's too many people uh, that have seen the South Park movie. You know, yeah. um, uh, uh, the uh, – uh, gosh, I'm like drawing the blank now on the name uh, of the movie, uh, uh, America, Team America, uh, Team, Team America, America World Police, yeah. Yeah. that sort of made him into a mockable figure that because yeah. he's so easy to mock, you don't take someone seriously that we mock in humor. And you're like, wait a minute, we may make fun of him, but the dude's got nukes.
1: Yes, and we need to pay attention and pay much more attention because I would not want to be Donald Trump in uh, 2020 explaining to the American people, oh, that was Obama's fault. Uh, I think to have a new country, North Korea, come up with a deliverable nuclear weapon on my watch would be a real problem for me. And I think Donald Trump will understand that. And lo and behold, after a while, he may realize that this lo and behold might be more complicated than healthcare.
0: (laughs) with that uh ambassador hill what would it take to get you back into public service by the way is there anything that you haven't done that you would do again
1: you know i'm uh if if uh uh, you did it your whole life and and so did your dad so you've you've sort of lived this forever it's uh it's a little weird not to be doing it but uh uh, let's say, uh, uh, my mentor and my tormentor Dick Holbrook once said to me, uh, <laughs> never turn down a job that hasn't been offered. So fair enough.
0: All right, Chris Hill, always a pleasure, sir. I uh, appreciate you doing this. Thank you. You've been listening to 1947, the meet the press podcast. Don't forget, we've got a lot of other episodes, so we'll listen to those, go rate us with only five-star ratings. If you're not going to do that, then we don't want you, uh, And listen to and 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 don't for don't forget we got new episodes uh, each week sometimes more than one in one week. Uh, Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. At Bet Three Six Five, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play—from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar.